4.6 billion. The Earth forms. Cambrian. 542 million. Complex life explodes. Permian-Triassic. 251 million. 90% of species die. Cretaceous-Tertiary. 65 million. Meteor kills the dinosaurs. 55 million. Primates appear. 2.3 million. Pleistocene. 200,000. Humans appear. 20,000. Agricultural 250. revolution. 250. Industrial revolution. 60. Great acceleration. The Anthropocene. Welcome to Generation Anthropocene. I'm Leslie Chang, one of the producers of Gen Anthro, and I'm sitting here today with my co-producer, Mike Osborne. Hi, Leslie. So, Mike, you interviewed Dr. Benjamin Santer for today's episode. Yes, I did. And uh, before the interview, what was your impression of Dr. Santer? I didn't actually know who he was. I had to look him up. And when I met him, I mean, he came across as very, very composed, very level-headed, maybe even a little cautious. But, but he sort of commands a certain respect. And so when I looked him up, I discovered that he is actually a really interesting guy because he was at the center of a firestorm back in the, uh, the mid-90s. And he's a climate scientist, right? That's right. And what was the deal with that firestorm that Dr. Sander got caught up in? Oh, right. So I always feel like I have to explain mid-90s history to you because you're what like 20 22 22 yeah. right so <laughs> so I, I i mean it's it's sort of easy to forget that climate was not always this political of an issue it didn't start off as as a right left kind of thing uh and it was really in the mid-90s when things changed and in particular it was the second ipcc report uh, and there was a chapter in that report on detection and attribution. And Dr. Sanner was the lead author of that report. Uh, there was a, a sentence, a famous sentence that came out that read, the balance of evidence suggests a discernible human influence on global climate. And it's this carefully worded sentence that really shows uh, how how the politics were starting to take over, how the science was starting to be co-opted. So... I wanted to talk to him because it's an origin story in a way. Yeah, it sounds like a historic moment. It is. And I think the interesting thing is that Dr. Sander at the time didn't really see this coming. Uh, he mm. didn't really have a full appreciation for just how important climate was going to be as not just a scientific issue, but as a political issue. Yeah. All right. Uh, let's hear the interview now. This is Mike Osborne, and my guest today is Dr. Benjamin Santer. He's part of the Program for Climate Model Diagnosis and Intercomparison at Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory. His work focuses on making statistical comparisons between state-of-the-art climate models around the world. In 1998, Dr. Santer was awarded a MacArthur Fellowship for his research findings supporting the human contribution to climate change. He was recently elected to the National Academy of Sciences and he's one of the most influential scientists working on the climate issue today. Dr. Center, welcome to Generation Anthropocene. Thanks for inviting me, Mike. So I want to start off by talking a little bit about your research. Can you give us a, an overview, the elevator pitch, as it were? Sure. I study the nature and causes of climate change and have done so for about the last 25 years. The problem of trying to identify some human-caused signal in the climate records is a statistical problem. 
So what I do is largely signal processing type work where you think you know something about the, the signal, the climate change caused, for example, by human-caused changes in greenhouse gases, and you think you know something about the noise of natural climate variability. Those are year-to-year -year and decade-to-decade changes in climate caused by things like El Niños, La Niñas, uh, some longer-term oscillations in the climate system like the Pacific Decadal Oscillation. And the problem is a statistical problem of trying to tease out that human-caused component embedded in the noise of natural variability. How much global warming have we experienced in terms of the human contribution, uh, and can we start to pinpoint when that contribution really began? Sure. From observational estimates of global scale changes in surface temperature, we know that the average temperature of the planet has increased by about 0.8 degrees Celsius over the 130 years or so we, we think we have reliable uh, estimates. And the IPCC, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, concluded back in their fourth assessment report in 2007 that most of that observed warming was due to us, was due to human-caused changes in levels of greenhouse gases in the atmosphere. So uh, if humans uh, had ceased to exist around, I don't know, 1850 or so, would we know what the temperature of the Earth would be today? I mean, is, is that part of what we're trying to do, is sort of subtract that component? Yeah, we can do exactly the numerical experiment that you suggested. I like to call it undisturbed Earth. So you can say, what if humans were not on the planet and there was no human intervention in the climate system? No burning of fossil fuels, no human-caused production of other greenhouse gases like chlorofluorocarbons, no human transformation of the land surface. What would the temperature evolution have been like in the absence of any human intervention? And our best understanding is, again, that most of the warming that we've actually experienced, uh, particularly over the last 50, 60 years, is due to human intervention. Are there other variables that we can point to? Have we seen changes in precipitation that had humans you know, not intervened, not been around? Uh, are there other variables where we can say we've seen a, a clear human footprint other than just temperature? Yeah, definitely. So back in 1995, 1996, I was involved in the second assessment report of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. That was the report that came to the historic finding that quote, the balance of evidence suggests a discernible human influence on global climate. Some of the underpinning for that was provided by these fingerprint studies, and they use that information to try and discriminate between the different causes of climate change. Now, back then in 1995, 1996, most of those fingerprint studies looked at surface temperature. And when the balance of evidence statement came out in 1996, it was criticized. The criticism went like this. If there really is a human-caused climate change signal lurking in observations, go find it in other things. You should see it not just in the surface temperature of the planet. You should look in the oceans, in upper ocean temperatures. You should look in water vapor. You should look in humidity at the surface. You should look at Arctic sea ice. You should look at pressure patterns. If there really is something there, then it's not just in one aspect of the climate system alone. 
And what's happened since 1995, 1996, is that scientists have indeed probed many different aspects of observed climate change. And they've done this fingerprinting. And in each of these cases, the bottom line is that natural causation alone can't, I repeat, can't, explain the changes that we see in all of those variables. One thing I want to understand is when this started getting political, when did you first sort of see that, uh, oh boy, this, this might be a really politically contentious issue? When did, when did that thought kind of hit you? November 1995. Uh, that corresponded with the IPCC plenary meeting in Madrid. Uh, so that was the meeting at which the governments involved in the IPCC process sat down in in a conference center for three days and their job was to to try and approve the the wording in the summary for policymakers and to accept the underlying science chapters of the report upon which the summary for policymakers was based and before that meeting you hadn't really thought much about the politics of this stuff no i hadn't thought much about it at all my job I was the convening lead author of Chapter 8, uh, the chapter of the second assessment report that dealt with detection of climate change and attribution of causes. And the only thing I thought about was doing the best possible science. So how can we put aside all personal filters through which we see the world of science and search for that holy grail of objectivity? That's all I was focused on. I was blissfully unaware <laughs> of what would happen at the end of November 1995 in Madrid. So what happened at the meeting? Well, on the first day of the plenary meeting, I was charged with giving some presentation about the findings in Chapter 8 of the second assessment report. And it became immediately obvious that Chapter 8 was going to attract extraordinary attention, particularly from some of the countries present, uh, principally the Saudi uh, delegation, the Kuwaiti delegation, the Kenyan delegate on the first day um, requested that our chapter be removed from the report, that there was no scientific basis for uh, having a detection and att attribution chapter in the second assessment report. The uh, first day also had participation from non-governmental organizations and the Global Climate Coalition, a consortium of energy interests, was very critical of our chapter on the first uh, day of the plenary meeting. So that was a bit of an eye-opener. Uh, other delegations were arguing that there was really no strong scientific evidence to support findings of a human effect on climate, and it was all too uncertain, and... Uh, uh, that was fundamentally incorrect. That was not in accord with the then available science, which even back then was showing clear evidence that natural causes alone couldn't explain the observed changes we were seeing. All of our attention had not been focused on how other people might interpret, uh, particularly how uh, other governments might interpret the science that we were presenting to them. Our, our attention had been focused on providing the best available science. So I was naive. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, w what happened at the, the end of the meeting? I mean, the, the chapter was included in the second assessment report. It was uh, included in the second assessment report. And uh, my friend, the late Steve Schneider, uh, has described what happened in Madrid in his book, Science as a Contact Sport, and has de described... Uh, how the Kenyan delegate 
who had initially called for removal of our chapter um, was eventually persuaded by the scientific discussions at Madrid that the chapter was credible. There were extraordinary discussions during those three days. An ad hoc group was set up uh, involving countries interested in Chapter 8, interested in the detection and attribution chapter, to address the concerns of individual countries like the Saudis and the Kuwaitis and sharpen the language, make it less prone to misinterpretation or taking things out of context. So those three days in Madrid were unforgettable. So I don't know, where were you sort of mentally after these meetings? I mean, were you, had you had enough of this? I mean, did you? Uh, I, was, I was just relieved. It came to a head on, on the, late in the evening of the third day when we finally came up with that historic discernible UN influence statement. And it was accepted by every country present at Madrid. The balance of evidence suggests a discernible human influence on global climate. Every one of the nearly 100 countries present in Madrid signed on to that statement. At that point, I was just exhausted. I had been on stage up there in the plenary for seven or eight hours. I hadn't eaten much. I just wanted to go out and get something to eat and have a beer, which I did together with some of my colleagues there. And, and I vividly remember uh, Steve Schneider turning to me as we were having uh, dinner together and saying, this, this sentence will change the world. I didn't, know what he I didn't know what he was talking about. I had no appreciation <laughs> of what that moment actually meant and of the significance of, of that moment and that single sentence. But Steve was right. I'm sure most of our listeners are familiar with Steve Schneider, but uh, just to be clear, he was a uh, very outspoken climate scientist and not afraid of getting into uh, battles in the media and, and, and representing the science. I want to make sure that that's clear for everyone. Uh, when did you first meet Steve? I first met Steve, I think, back in Hamburg when I was a postdoc in Hamburg. He was a very, very good friend of mine. He was a source of inspiration to me, particularly in that 1995-1996 period when things started to go wrong. <laughs> and this criticism of Chapter 8 of the second assessment report became very, very public. Um, well, how, when, when did that happen? It really happened in the spring of 1996. The Global Climate Coalition came out with a report entitled The IPCC Institutionalized Scientific Cleansing. And this was at the time that ethnic cleansing was going on in Bosnia, so it was reprehensible to use language like that. And the Global Climate Coalition was alleging that all sense of scientific uncertainty had been purged or cleansed from Chapter 8, which was patently absurd, was ridiculous. 20% of Chapter 8 was specifically devoted to the discussion of scientific uncertainties. But back then, in the spring of 1996, Cambridge University Press, the publishers of the IPCC second assessment report, had distribution problems in the United States. So it was actually difficult to get a, a copy of this, this report and see for yourself that, yeah, uncertainties are discussed at length in this chapter. This is before the Internet in, in some ways, yeah, or at least the way it is now. <laughs> Certainly before the way it is now. So they were making these claims that were patently incorrect. 
and these claims were getting a lot of traction. Did you feel singled out? I did feel singled out. I was I was named in in some of these allegations of scientific cleansing, personally named. I remember being asked to give a presentation in Congress, not formal testimony, but to congressional staffers, members of Congress. And after I gave my presentation about the scientific underpinning for the discernible human influence finding, a representative of the Global Climate Coalition started yelling and screaming that I had engaged in unauthorized, making unauthorized changes to Chapter 8 and uh, created a scene, quite frankly. The, the intent was to draw attention to himself and to these claims of scientific cleansing. And I said there in public, as I've said time and time again, uh, the changes were not unauthorized. They were made by me, not by shadowy political operatives. And the changes were made in response to comments from governments. They were made uh, in response to comments at these ad hoc groups that uh, took place in, in Madrid. The changes were authorized. They were sanctioned by the IPCC. And they were in response to valid scientific concerns, not, not political reasons. I mean, I think people listening this, to this today in early 2013... You know, that things have gotten to a point where, in some ways, the politicization of it is somewhat crystallized. But, I mean, this is kind of the origins in some ways. To be witness to that and to be a character in that, that sounds sort of terrifying. Well, yes and no. Uh, back then, in 1996, it was quite difficult. I remember vividly that in June of 1996, Fred Seitz, past president of the U.S. National Academy of Sciences, wrote an op-ed in the Wall Street Journal entitled A Major Deception on Global Warming, in which he named me personally and accused me of the worst abuses of the peer review system that he had ever seen in his 40 years as, as a scientist. That was serious stuff. Here am I, a relatively junior scientist at Lawrence Livermore National Lab, being accused in the uh, pages of a, of a major newspaper of serious professional misbehavior by a very famous guy, not a climate scientist, not someone who had been present at Madrid, not someone who had participated in the IPCC process and was making claims that were wrong, that were just factually incorrect about what had happened at Madrid and why changes had been made. So there was this recognition after publication of that uh, op-ed piece that for the rest of my life, Nothing I could do or say could change that, that some fraction of the population would think that I had behaved dishonorably or unprofessionally. And that's, that's a tough recognition that uh, people can say things that are demonstrably incorrect about who you are and what you did and why you did things, and you have little or no recourse. You can't take it back. The genie is out of the box, as it were. Uh, that's that's tough. Nothing in your scientific training or education prepares you for that kind of challenge to your integrity. You're prepared as a scientist to stand up there and defend the research that you've done, the appropriateness of the conclusions and research methods, but you're not prepared to have people uh, call you a liar or a cheat and uh, 
claim that you should be dismissed with dishonor from your position at Lawrence Livermore National Lab. One gentleman even circulated a rumor that I had been indicted at the Hague International Court of Justice for, quote, falsification of international scientific documents, unquote. This was the time that Slobodan Milosevic was up in front of the International Court at The Hague. So it was rather sobering to be in the same um, company as Slobodan Milosevic. I mean, one thing that comes with uh, a PhD is uh, something of a diverse skill set. Did you ever consider throwing up your arms and saying, you know what, this is not for me. I, I'd, I'd rather do some other field of science Frequently in that summer of 1996, I was very disheartened to have this happen then, to have people accuse you of scientific cleansing, of political tampering, to question your own research, and to have all of this at once. <laughs> it, was, uh, it was enough to get me to consider, uh, is this what I really want to do? Is this how I want to spend the rest of my career? And again, my friend Steve Schneider was extremely helpful to me back at that time. I remember that he took me aside and he gave me some very wise counsel and said that a measure of your success in science is not just the number of and quality of papers you publish in the peer-reviewed literature, but it's also the number and the qualities of the enemies you accumulate over time. And if you're getting powerful people upset, then you're probably doing something right. I think Justice Warren uh, also said, everything in my life I've done that was worthwhile, I've caught hell for. So what I learned in that summer of 1996 was that this was something worth fighting for, that I could not just retreat to my office and avoid accountability, avoid questions about what I had done. I had to be accountable, not just as an individual, but also as a representative of the scientific community. I was the lead author of Chapter 8. I carried the can. I was a representative of, of others who had given generously of their, of their time and expertise to that chapter. And I had a responsibility to set the record straight and to explain what had happened in putting together that chapter and what the scientific evidence was. What was the underpinning for that discernible human influence conclusion? And that was a very, very valuable lesson that we all are accountable in the end. I want to return a second to the lessons learned from you experiencing this, this sort of attack, in a sense, or at least uh, intense criticism and public scrutiny in the mid-90s. You said nothing in your training really could have prepared you for that. I mean, that, at that point, you didn't realize that climate change science was going to become very political, very public, very important to very powerful interests. And a, a, sci a climate scientist today in graduate school is very conscious of the political atmosphere. Uh, I wonder what you can tell those young scientists. Well, that some things are worth fighting for, uh, but also to be accountable, to, to tell people what I've done, what I've learned, why they need to care about it. And when that work does come under unjustified political attack, we, we just don't have the luxury of remaining silent. In the end, 
we can't embrace ignorance with open arms. Reality is overtaking us. You know, no matter how hard and how loudly some politicians uh, shout that this is not a problem or it's a hoax or it's a conspiracy, reality is overtaking us. They won't be able to halt the physical changes in the climate system. And I hope, I hope that younger scientists are not deterred by uh, the sort of political attacks that climate scientists have experienced in, in recent years. I hope that instead they are encouraged that they see, wow, this is an important issue. This isn't a trivial issue. This is an issue worthy of my attention. This is an issue where doing good science matters. I would hope that that would be the message that they would take away from the events of the last few years and, and decades. Dr. Benjamin Center, this has been a fabulous conversation. Thank you so much for sitting down with us. Thank you for giving me this opportunity, Mike. Thanks for listening to this episode of Generation Anthropocene. We want to thank co-producers Tom Hayden and Miles Traer for all their behind-the-scenes work, as well as Leslie Chang, Maxine Luckett, and Sam Larson. Special thanks to Pam Madsen, Dean of Stanford School of Earth Sciences. A very special thanks to Maserati for letting us use their song, Monoliths. Thanks also to KZSU Stanford 90.1, where all of our interviews were recorded. You can find past episodes of Generation Anthropocene at anthropocene.stanford.edu. Follow us on Twitter or like us on Facebook. History is accelerating, and you're a part of it too. Where would you draw the line?